Welcome to the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Joe and Ron are self-proclaimed teacher nerds geeking out on all things education. They are looking to move educational practices out of the 1900s factory worker model to a student-driven classroom full of empathetic, creative, and collaborative students willing to take risks. Join them as they chat with educators from around the world, discussing educational tools, techniques, ideas, policies, and much more. Thank you for listening and becoming one of the teacher nerds. And now a word from a sponsor. Have you heard about the nerds? What's the word? Teacher nerds. You can tweet them out on Twitter. You can find them on the gram. After listening to their podcast, you'd be sitting there like, bam, trying to take the teaching from one level to the next, reaching up to Canada and down to Mexico. Gotta go. Teaching nerds. Start the show. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Teacher Nerds Podcast. I'm Ron Nober. And I'm Joe DiPaolo. I am a technology teacher for third to eighth grade. And I teach third grade. And today we have uh, a guest with us, uh, Zoe Weil coming from Maine, and she is the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education. Zoe, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So let's just jump in and get started with our two yes mores, one no way. And we found a connection kind of right away with Zoe. Um, We did 50s music today. So It's time for two yes more, one no we go joe you're gonna start us off okay so 50s music not necessarily my forte especially being into rock and roll and the two songs that i do have for my life i don't think have anything to do with rock and roll the first is unchained melody right and uh and the other one uh i guess it's it's falling in love i can't help falling in love with you is that the righteous brothers I think it might be, yeah. I think, um, or I forget, some brothers. Um, and, you know, they bring back memories just from, this is going to really date me. We used to rollerblade in the parking lot and we would like just walk, you know, rollerblade and ride around in circles and actually sing. I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're ballads, but they're definitely like a type of love song. Um, and normally that's not my style. So I figure it's very interesting that that's what I would, I would bring in. Um, Cause that's what I think of. When I think about that 50s vibe, um, and there's really nothing on my no way list. Like this is my, it's not my finest hour with the two yes mores and one no ways. Um, And I agreed to the 50s music. I just thought there'd be a little more out there, but nothing really came out me as far as, you know, musical, musical dislikes. Fair enough. All right, Zoe, what about you? Well, I was a big fan of 50s music, and so thank you for letting me go down memory lane. It was really, really hard to pick just two. I have a list of about 10. (laughs) But um, my top two would be Johnny Cash, I Walk the Line, and Del Shannon's Runaway. Yeah. And I don't really have a no way, um, and I hope I don't get hate mail for this, but I was never a big fan of Elvis Presley. Oh, all right. Sorry. Hey, hey well, that, Joe and I always say that's why they make vanilla chocolate and strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you'll still agree to interview me for the rest yes, of this I- podcast. 
this was a you know this uh kind of it brought me back because i i remember growing up my mom listening to and zoe you may remember this oldies 98 was the station in philly it was the oldies station and she would be in the kitchen she would have this on when we we're making breakfast and things like that and she would be singing along and bebopping along to different 50s music and and stuff like that so brought me back my one yes more was la bamba it's just one of those songs when even if it's you don't like it when it comes on you can't help but kind of sing along um you know and then i didn't do a song uh, for my next two, uh, my next yes and my no way, but my it was an artist for my yes was Nat King Cole. Mm. Uh, There's so many good songs by Nat King Cole, whether it's you know Christmas music or just you know regular music. I, I actually in class every day when my middle school students come in, they have a question of the day and it's just a hit or miss. I play a song and they decide whether it's a hit or miss. The other day I played Nat King Cole, Orange Colored Sky. And they were so into it oh. because it was jazzy and um, it was it was great. Like, it, you know, they were like, but it sounds like Christmas music. I'm like, well, that's because <laughs> Cole plays a lot of the Christmas music that you all hear. When I did my Google search, I had to go back and check the search to see if I put in 50s Christmas music because that was majority of the top songs from the 50s. They were saying we're all like yeah. Christmas this and I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, when you look at that traditional Christmas music, that's that like 40s and 50s is where a lot of that comes with Bing Crosby and, yeah. you know, Perry Como and all those different artists um, for that fit Christmas music. My one no way and i would say zo you you kind of hit johnny cash and i would take him out of this category but 50s country music um i was not you know i'm not really a big fan of and i know johnny cash kind of may go country but um he was probably but he's johnny cash right he's right he he transcends country music you you know so and i always have to like johnny cash because my wife's name sue susan and and there's the boy named sue so you have to <laughs> we have to like that song so awesome thank you for uh for doing that with us and, and taking your trip down memory lane as well so. we're gonna pause for a second to take a little break but we'll be back in a moment would you like to hear your educational book platform or program advertised in this spot with the teacher nerd sponsorship program that could happen you can be featured on the show and help us continue to bring great content to the podcast We offer three levels of sponsorship, including commercials voiced and produced by one of the teacher nerds, as well as links listed on our sponsor's webpage. Visit teachernerds.com backslash sponsorship to check out some sample commercials and more information. And remember, that's nerds with a Z. And now back to the show. Let's just jump right in. Can you tell listeners about your journey in education, you know, how you started off and, and where you are now? Sure. So I I actually was a teacher and naturalist in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which I'm sure you're familiar yeah, with. It's, it's right, up, the, right down the road. Yep. And um, it was at the Paws Nature Center. Yeah. Yep. And so I I was going into schools and doing presentations and kids would come to Paws and, and I would I would teach them. Um 
it's funny because if it weren't for the fact that you guys are in the greater Philadelphia area, I probably wouldn't have mentioned that as the beginning, but it really was the beginning for me. And then I was in graduate school and I was looking for a summer job. And I found this program at the University of Pennsylvania that offered week-long courses to middle school students. And I pitched five courses to the program director. She said yes to all five of them. Apparently she was saying yes to a lot of people because there were 60 courses offered that summer and there weren't nearly enough students to fill those courses. Um, But uh, three of my courses did run and one of them was the second most popular of the 60 courses that were offered that summer, which had nothing to do with me because nobody knew me. It had to do with the subject. And um, so the courses that ran, one was on creative writing, one was on environmental issues, and the the second most popular was on animal issues. And so what happened during the course of that week was I was teaching these um, middle school students about what was happening to animals in our culture, in our society. And as they learned, they were also really thinking about what they could do to make a difference. And one boy went home after learning about product testing on animals, which is where everything from, you know, oven cleaner to cosmetics and shampoo or dripped into the eyes of conscious rabbits and force fed to them in quantities that kill and smeared on their abraded skin. And this boy went home and he made his own homemade leaflets. And this was in 1987. He did not have a personal computer. He hand wrote his leaflets. Now, this was not an assignment or anything. He just had fire in the belly, wanted to make a difference. So when we got back to class the next day, while the rest of us were having lunch, he actually stood out on a Philadelphia street corner handing out his homemade leaflets. He wanted to make a difference that badly. And um, a couple of the kids went on to form a Philadelphia area-wide student group, and they began to win awards for their activism and change-making. And many years later, so I'm going to jump ahead and then I'll jump back. Many years later, I had the opportunity to speak at an event with Jane Goodall. And I invited one of the boys who was in that class, who's now an adult, and he's working on HIV AIDS issues for the mayor of New York City. So this was in New York. And I invite him to come and I'm introducing him to some uh, friends after my presentation And I said, this is David. And he was in the very first humane education course I ever taught. And before I could even finish my sentence, he interjected, that course changed my life. And it also changed my life because that's when I had that lightning bulb moment where I realized just how powerful education could be to ignite this fire and this passion among youth about issues they cared about. Now, remember, these kids had all registered to take that class. They they cared about that issue. Um, and what I came to believe is that young people need to be taught about all global ethical issues and community issues, whether they relate to human rights or they relate to the environment or they relate to how we treat other species, as long as it's done in age-appropriate ways. And those young people are provided with opportunities to make a difference, 
then that kind of education it just um, becomes so meaningful and relevant. And so that's where I got my start. And I created a Philadelphia area-wide program where I went into schools and did presentations and after-school programs and assembly programs and was reaching about 10,000 students a year in the greater Philadelphia area. So lots and lots of schools, including in Burlington County, where you are in New Jersey. And um, and then I realized that it this wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to go in and be a visiting teacher. What really needed to happen was that education needed to be transformed by teachers in classrooms who see the students every day. And so then... In 1996, 25 years ago, I co-founded the Institute for Humane Education, primarily to to provide the resources and the training, the professional development for teachers. And we created the first graduate programs in humane education, linking human rights and sustainability issues and animal protection issues, and been doing this ever since. Wow. I mean, and it's uh, so it's right up Joe and I, like, I mean, we in, was it October of 19 or 2019, we went to a PD session and saw two sessions from Dr. Jennifer Williams and on the SDGs. And like that, that was on a Friday. And I think Monday, Joe and I were talking like, we're changing everything we're doing in the classroom. Like we are getting kids involved because every kid can look at the list of SDGs and find something they're passionate about in there. Yep. Yep. And Joe and I have talked, it was like reading your book. I, it was like, I was almost talking to Joe because we've, we've talked about, wouldn't it be great to open up an SDG school where the curriculum all revolves around the SDGs and all those, you know, causes. Yep. Yep. That's wonderful. And you wouldn't know Joe always talks about this, Joe. Go ahead. Right. Like you don't know, are we in writing class now? Are we in reading class now? Are we in social studies class? No, exactly. because it all it all flows. So in reading, you're reading about the issues no, that you're learning about from the countries in social studies or your own country. So it's all it's all intertwined. And it's not just a schedule on the board going from one period to another, which we try and do. And man, is it hard. And and when you know, Zoe, you were saying you were one teacher reaching all of those students, which which was good, right? Like that's the drop in the bucket. But then how cool would it be if there was more of you and then how many more students would be affected and, you know, things could really start to change. We see it at third grade. Ron sees it from third grade through eighth grade, you know, and, and right now not every kid cares about something, but there's kids in third grade that do care about things. Um, and then as you get up in the grades, those issues, you talk about age appropriate, there'd be things that I wouldn't do or, or touch on in third grade where Ron could definitely dive a lot deeper with the older grades. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is kids know about so much at, at a much younger age than they used to. And um, I'll, I'll tell a story about that that relates to what you just said. So this was about five years ago, and I was invited to speak to a middle school in Connecticut. And I was talking to the fifth and sixth graders, and I asked them to share with me what they thought were the biggest problems in the world. And their answers filled an entire whiteboard. And one boy said sex trafficking. 
these were fifth and sixth graders. They were not learning about this in school. And, but they know so much. And um, so the next thing that happened was that I asked, um, I asked them to raise their hands if they thought we could solve the problems that they listed on the whiteboard. I, I write about this in my book. And of the 45 kids, only five raised their hands that they could even imagine solving those problems. And that was so distressing because if, if these children, I mean, these are 10 and 11 year olds, if they can't imagine us solving the problems that we face, then what's their motivation to try? And we know how much anxiety young people are experiencing, younger and younger. You know, it used to be, you know, you'd have cynical teenagers. Now you have cynical 10 year olds. And so I, I stopped what I was doing and I did a guided visualization with them where I asked them to imagine that they were very old and approaching the end of a very long and well-lived life. And, and by the end of their life, the world was so different. The air was clean. The waterways were clean. There hadn't been a war in decades. We treated each other and other species with respect and compassion. Nobody went to bed hungry because they had no choice. So I painted this vivid picture of this world. And then I asked them to imagine a child coming up and asking them what role they played in helping to bring about this better world. And while they, they had their eyes closed during this, and while they still had their eyes closed, I asked them to raise their hands if now they could imagine us solving the problems they'd listed on the whiteboard. And now 40 hands went up in the air. In the air. So it didn't take much. It, it took them believing that a better world was possible and imagining themselves being part of its creation. And it's, so just one more story. Uh, a year later, I was speaking to another group of fifth graders in Guadalajara, Mexico. And it was actually a very similar demographic, um, even though it was a different country. And I asked these kids, do you think we can solve the problems in the world? And every hand flew up in the air. And the real difference was what they were being taught in school. So those kids in Mexico, their teacher was teaching them again in age-appropriate ways about problems and they were actively working on solving them. So the school had established like solar panels on the roof and they'd gotten a compost system, system set up and, and they were no longer drinking out of disposable water bottles, but they had a water filtration system. So these kids knew problems could be solved because they were involved with solving them. And if we want young people to feel um, empowered and feel like their education is relevant and, and actually address the anxiety that they're experiencing, then we need to engage them in being what we call solutionaries who are solving these problems. So that's a great segue because that's one of my questions was, you talk about the term solutionary and you talk about it as a noun and an adjective. So could you explain a little more about what is a solutionary and as a noun and an adjective? Sure. So a solutionary is a person who can identify unsustainable, unjust, and inhumane systems, and then develop solutions that are good for everybody. So good for all people, good for other species, and good for the environment. Now, the reason you can use solutionary as an adjective is because it can also describe certain things. So you could have a 
solutionary politician. Wouldn't that be nice? And, um, so that politician is going to be oriented towards solving problems. They're going to bring a solutionary mindset, which means that you look at problems and you believe that they can be solved. And you believe that the best way to solve them is to understand their causes, work with a variety of stakeholders, find leverage points, get agreement, collaborate, and and find solutions. So, and not and not to interrupt you, but we're working through a persuasive writing unit right now, third grade. One idea is to look at the world through problems eyes and not complain about it, but find solutions for it. So, so I, (laughs) and that's not me. That's Lucy Calkins. That's Lucy Calkins. That's writer's (laughs) workshop. But then to take that and run with exactly those ideas you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but we talk about curriculum all the time. And and I, what you know, you hear, I, I can't do that. Who has the time? You don't need the time because it's when you do it right and it takes work, you interweave it, right? Yes, it's, it's exactly. It's embedded. Yes. 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 And so so any profession, any it could be you could have a solutionary. You can have a solutionary uh, architect who's designing more eco-friendly. Uh, buildings. You can have solutionary anything. We also use it as an adjective to actually describe solutions. So for a solution itself to be solutionary, it has to do two things. One, it has to address the root uh, and or systemic causes of that problem. So it's different from, let's say, doing a beach cleanup, which is a nice thing to do, or bringing food to a food pantry, which is a really nice thing to do, but it doesn't solve the problem of hunger or solve the problem of trash on the beach. So a solutionary solution is going to address the root and systemic causes. And it's gonna devise a solution that does the most good and the least harm to people, animals, and the environment. So it has the fewest unintended negative consequences. And often we've solved problems in isolation and we don't see how the the problem or the, the systems that perpetuate that problem, how we need to address that problem in such a way that our solution has very few unintended negative consequences. And I thought that was an amazing point in the book was, you know, those discussions. And I never really, you know, thought too deeply about that. But as you, I think one of the the examples you pointed out in the book, I think was ethanol um, and, and how, you know, that was a great idea because it was going to cut down on, uh, uh, you know, the gasoline and things like that. But then all the pollution that came from creating the ethanol Right. Yeah. So if you use more fossil fuels to actually produce the crops that you get your ethanol from than you would by just using gasoline, that's not a solutionary solution. And so this so being a solutionary, it's it's really exciting. It's not easy, but it's the kind of challenge that matters, that that makes students come alive and and makes the the whole curriculum deepen. So in order to be a solutionary, you have to learn a lot. You have to become an incredibly good investigator and researcher. You have to become a very proficient thinker and you have to have 
fostered your own compassion and desire and motivation to create change. And every step of that process produces a learner who is more prepared for the world, who is more engaged, and ultimately who's more joyful. Because as Joan Baez said, action is the antidote to despair. Yeah. I mean, one thing I I wonder, and I I just wondered about as you go, have gone through like the term solutionary, and you were talking about uh, creating students who were um, activists. And I, I think for myself growing up, if I would have gone home and told my dad, like, hey, we're learning about being an activist today at school, he'd have been up at school in like <laughs> 30 seconds going, what are y'all teaching my child? Because I think the term activist has such a negative yep. connotation to it that it may scare parents to, to like Joe's point of a parent saying, well, what are you, what are you guys talking about in there? Yep. Um, so what would you say? And I, I know this wasn't kind of in our questions, but it just popped up in my head. What would you say to someone or a parent who, who comes with that kind of thought? You know, what are you, what are you teaching my third grader about activism or, you know, even for me, like a sixth or seventh grader, I, I would imagine people may be into high school. People may say the same. Right. Well, um, so you may recall that when I brought up that term activism, it was in relationship to um, my very first course I taught when I was in my 20s in a summer program. So I am not educating young people to be activists um, through this approach. What we're trying to do is educate young people to be solutionaries. So now some may want to become activists. Uh, and I agree with you, there's a lot of negative stereotypes related to activism. And um, I can appreciate those. And interestingly, when I started learning about problems in the world, and I wanted to do something about it, the only thing that I really thought I could do was become that kind of traditional activist where you're leafleting on the street corner and going to rallies. And I did that for um, not very long. I, I, it, it was. Um, was that not fun? I, you know, not for me. For some people, it makes them come alive. I mean, it. I will still go to rallies. You know, if I feel really passionately about something, I'll show up. But it's not the way I want to create change. And one of the most frustrating things uh, in my very first time leafleting on the streets of Philadelphia was when people would um, either say to me, like, get a life, which was so insulting and hurt my feelings, um, or even worse, when they would take my leaflet and then, you know, walk 100 feet and drop it and litter. So it it just was not going to be the way I was going to create change. And I realized that education is the root system underlying every other societal system. And that if we want to transform whatever systems are around us that are unjust or unsustainable or inhumane, then education that we have to start with education, but I will be the first to tell young people that I am neither pessimistic nor feeling that everything is terrible in my, I'm 60 years old and I have watched so much change for the better in my lifetime 
when I was born, it was illegal in many states for black and white people to get married. The concept of gay marriage wasn't even on the radar when I was born. Um, when I was born, the air and water in many U.S. cities was actually dirtier than it is today, and the fires in the West notwithstanding. When I was born, half of all people on planet Earth lived in extreme poverty, and now that percentage is about 10%. So that's still way too high, but we have, we have made headway on a lot of issues. According to a Gallup poll, most people believe that animals should receive some protections or rights. So I believe that there, there's no need to think about educating young people to be activists. We just need to educate young people to be solutionaries. And solutionaries, they're just a different breed of person, really, when it comes right down to it, um, because a solutionary is not... Um, it won't buy into polarization. Um, they won't buy into this idea that you have to like choose one side or the other and fight about it. Solutionaries are would be disinclined to participate in a debate team where they're pitted against each other with the goal being to win. But a solutionary is going to have to do just must re just as much research, if not more research, than the debate team participant. But what they're going to do is they're going to solve the underlying problem. They're not going to argue about it. I love that. And and you talk about them being happier. And it sounds like they're going to need, we, we discussed that growth mindset and that positive thinking and that can-do attitude to step up to the challenge, right? So if you don't have that, then whether you want to be a solutionary, an activist, you know, you're not going to be able to do anything if you're not going to be willing to, to sit up and fight the problem. Um, so we start every day with a quote um, that talks just about that to kind of try and build them up because I see it. So like they're they at in eighth and at eight years old, they're on they're not happy. And and not everyone. We have little boys that are, I'm a three, I'm always a three, I'm just happy to be here. And I don't even know why. And and you know, like you at eight years old though, shouldn't they all be saying that? Yes. You yeah. know, and, and they're really not and the world's down and this and that. And, and some of them, yes, there's there's some underlying issues, but not all of them. And and so to really push that growth mindset and that positive thinking, um, I think that's also key because without that, then I don't think they're going to be happy because the world is always going to be raining on their parade and not for anything. The rain's not half bad. Rain makes the grass grow. And we yeah. all know I do have green grass in the front yard. <laughs> And I love, I mean, I, I even just listening to you, Zo, talk about from issues that were prevalent when you were born to where they are now. I think that mindset is is so amazing to to view it from that, because I think if you watch the 24 hour news cycle that we have now, you would think everything is thousands of times worse than it's ever been ever. And I, I'll be honest. I'm, I myself probably catch myself falling into that as well, because you just get caught up. You, you almost can't help but see it sometimes. And whether the students are actively watching it or they're just playing with Legos on the floor, but it's in the background, mm -hmm. they're still taking it in. Absolutely. And so 
you know, the the term, if it bleeds, it leads, has been around for a long right. time. But now with the 24-hour news cycle and the fact that, you know, every young person is is on this amazing thing called the internet and has access to all this information, the information they're going to continually being, be bombarded by is going to be negative. And there are evolutionary reasons for that. You know, you didn't have to attend to the positive. You had to attend to the lion that might be chasing you. So, we, uh, the the media and politicians are constantly going to be trying to play on our fear and our anger. And so this is why it is so essential that young people understand and that teachers teach that a better world is possible, a more just, sustainable, and humane world is possible. We are on our way. Let's get there together. We can work together. We don't have to fight about these issues. We can figure it out. It's it's really something that we have to be so mindful of as educators because you know we are seeing the the despair and anxiety growing among children. And meanwhile, the same devices that can make them feel despair are also the devices that can allow them to learn about and collaborate with other children across the globe. And, you know, that's what we have to help them do. And this is why it is so critical that we need, that we teach in different ways. We can't teach the way we were teaching 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. With all of the ways that positive change has happened, there is one arena where things are getting worse quickly, and that is our heating planet. And that really is a, a an existential threat to so much of life on Earth. We could lose half of all species on Earth by the end of this century. That really is worrisome. And we need to be engaged in solving that. And you look who's leading the way. Young people are leading the right. way with their climate strikes. And that is a that that is a place for activism because we we as adults, we need to we need to get our act together. Yeah, there are definitely I mean, again, like there is a place for that because that's those young people are kind of shocking and, and hitting you in the face with this is what's important to us. We know or we can see the the train coming almost. Um yep. and maybe some of the adults don't. <laughs> Yeah. And they're going to be alive. Right. right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So one of the, a few points in the book, one of the things you talk about are like, there are these 12 skills or cognitive abilities that, that children need for today. And I thought they were kind of similar to like the four C's that we all hear about in education. But the one thing, you know, you really talked about was thinking, like really thinking and the critical components to being a solutionary. So how do we go about teaching thinking? Like I, it, it's almost as an educator, I'm like, man, I don't remember the class on how to teach thinking <laughs> in, in school. And, you know, it's different, I guess, if you're in middle school or high school, but even teaching to like a third grader or fourth grader or fifth grader, how do you teach thinking? That is such an important question. There's a really wonderful um, uh, organization, the Critical Thinking Initiative, and they teach about how to teach critical thinking. So solutionary thinking, you, you can't be a solutionary without a few things. You have to have the uh, disposition, you have to have the motivation, you have to have uh, compassion um, 
and and a commitment to want to make the your your society better, your community better, your school better, whatever. Um, I think but kids then you naturally have that. Yes, they absolutely naturally have that. And so then um, directing that and then providing the next step, which is solutionary thinking. So solutionary thinking is comprised of many forms of thinking, but primarily critical thinking, systems thinking, strategic thinking, and creative thinking. Now, those thinking capacities, they don't happen in a linear fashion, but they are somewhat sequential. So without critical thinking, so the ability to discern fact from conjecture or opinion, to, to actually know what's true, to be able to research and investigate and, and um, recognize bias and distinguish it from non-biased um, information, to, to be able to look at primary sources, all of those pieces of research that, that lead to critical thinking, that lies at the foundation. Without good critical thinking skills, we can't develop good systems thinking skills. So what is systems thinking? Systems thinking is, is the ability to recognize the many interconnected systems in our society. So, you know, if you look at any problem. So let's say a student is, um, you know, concerned about climate change and they want to address that problem. They do a lot of research. Well, there are so many systems that contribute to climate change, an economic system, political system, energy system, transportation system, production system. I mean, they're just many, many systems. So with critical thinking at the base, then a student can learn how to recognize these various systems. And then with those two working together, then a student can become a, a strategic thinker to actually look for leverage points, places where a, a small force can have a big response and then develop strategies for creating change. And when you have all those working together, creative thinking then allows any innovations to be in this framework where you understand deeply the problem, the causes of the problem, and some potential leverage points to create change. So those are the forms of thinking. How do we teach that? Well, at the Institute for Humane Education, we produced a solutionary guidebook and a 14-step process for becoming a solutionary. And that guidebook is free, and anybody can uh -huh. go to our website, Humane Education, and download the guidebook. There's a student version for about sixth grade and up called How to Be a Solutionary. We're actually looking to produce a, a version for younger students as well. Um, but, but right now, How to Be a Solutionary is for sixth grade and up. And Again, that's free too. Students don't need to supply an email to get it. They can just download it. And the 14-step process is also just linked on our website. Anybody can read that process and go through it. And, you know, the teaching anything requires some knowledge uh, of it oneself. So, you know, math teachers understand math and language arts teachers understand language arts. And it's the same with teaching young people to be solutionaries. Teachers really need to go through this process themselves. And we actually have a solutionary micro-credential program 
four teachers and we've we've made it uh, extremely affordable and and if you if a teacher doesn't have any resources from their school they can take it free of charge and it's a 30 hour micro credential and the second module of it it's, it's three 10 hour um, modules the second one is going through the process yourself as a teacher so you gain experience thinking this way learning to research and understand these systems yourself addressing a problem you care about as a teacher and then you can then integrate this into your classroom so the third module is all about creating your plan to integrate this kind of thinking into you whatever your curriculum is whether you're an art teacher or you teach a foreign language or you teach math or you science or third grade. That's all, Joe. I think that, uh, that sounds like a PLC. We might, uh, throw together in school. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, well, I figure what you said, uh, so three 10 hour courses, right. right. And yep. so Ron, by the time we got into it, we would probably have December through May or June. Yeah. That'd be awesome. We could, we could go through that. Yeah, um, do it. it and it and bring, sounds... some, bring some more teachers. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because that's the other thing. Like, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, but go. The, the, we're really hoping to get um, teachers, you know, it, there's such a discount for teachers who enroll um, five or more teachers from a school because what we really want to see is we want to see schools be transformed. So all of the interdisciplinary learning happening, like you were talking about, Joe, you know, this is how you can change a whole school culture. This is how students year after year after year can become better and better solutionaries. And, and you can solve problems in the school and problems in the community. I mean, it, it, it's such a win for kids and a win for teachers and a win for schools and a win for communities and a win for our world. And it sounds like it has a lot of connection, almost like design thinking, right? Cause yes. you're, you're, you're observing and building an empathy and, you know, brainstorming solutions and then narrowing things down. And so it, it sounds very, just like it could go hand in hand with, <laughs> with some type of design thinking as well. I forget what design thinking workshop we went to, but I'll never forget the line where they said, you have to come up with that mindset that the world that we live in was designed by humans and yes. it's going to be humans that are going to make it better. So exactly. it could, and, it, and it doesn't have to be, you know, eventually, yes, we want them changing the world, but I think to get that mindset starting, you, you do maybe the think alouds, right? Like you're standing in the cafeteria and all the kids are trying to go through the two lines and you think, Hmm, how can we do this better? You know, and, and, and then get, I think Ron, like, is now what we do, right? Like we get that ball rolling and get those kids to be able to talk to people. And I guess that kind of maybe get brings in the systems, right? Like, how is this going to work and how are we going to make this happen? Who do we have to talk to? Um, yep. So it does, it sounds like it's right up our alley and it sounds like it can be worked into our PLC, which is very early on in its process. Well, and you know, it, there are overlaps with design thinking. So one person described our solutionary approaches as problem-based learning on steroids. Yeah. So it takes, and, and our, our current executive director who just joined us, he's just an amazing, amazing um, educator. His name's Steve Cochran. And he was the superintendent of the Princeton Public Schools. And he's been a, 
an elementary school teacher and principal and then an award-winning superintendent. And he says it, it takes PBL to the next level. And one of the things that distinguishes all this, and I'll just bring it up again, is this focus on causes and the unintended negative consequences, being acutely aware that solutions need to do the most good and the least harm for people, animals, and the environment. And that's part of what makes this so unique. Right. Well, you really have to think, like you said, critically and deeply to go, okay, well, I'm going to do this. What is the domino effect of my plan? Right. Well, and Ron, I I think about our koala project where it starts to hit this where we were trying to, the kids see everything that's going on with the forest fires in Australia years ago, they want to do something. So we start raising money. So, and you know, they, they, then we get hit with COVID everyone goes and it, it, you know, who knows where we could have gone with that, but then to go to the next level, why are these forest fires happening? What's the cause now? What can we do? You know, yeah, it's, you know, the quals are cute and that's what draws everybody in. And that's, and we use, I mean, it was, that was a great project, but yeah, to listen to you talk, like, cause I always thought what would be the next level and the kids, when we, when we did have an end date, um, I remember one of the little girls going, well, <laughs> why do we have to have an end date? <laughs> and Ron, right. I'm like, cause Mr. DePaulo's tired. You know, like, <laughs> and, and not that we, you know, not, it was myself and another teacher, not that we did all the work, but we do all the facilitating and, and we would come together with the kids as a class and get, look, this is where we're at, what has to be done. And we start, you know, I mean, it was really a brainstorming operation, but yeah, to then to take it to that next level. And, and there were third graders and it started with persuasive writing and then, oh, look at this, the SDG health and well-being. Oh, look at that. Hey, look at that poster. There's all kinds of other stuff. Oh, you can. And, and in third grade, we, you know, there's a lot on that poster. So we start with health and well-being, life on land and, and life underwater. Great yep. places to start. And the kids, you know, they dive all into it. And oh, and as a surfer, they're like, Mr. Paulo, Mr. Paulo, look at look at this plastic on this turtle. That's that's ridiculous. Oh, you know, and and they get excited. But then there's the kids that that have gone through Philly. Last year we had a little student that wanted to bring attention to uh all the homelessness. And and it floored me. I said, wait a minute, there's homelessness in Southampton. And he goes, Well, I don't know about that. But when we were in Philly this weekend, so you know. We call home and say, look, this is what he wants to do. And she goes, yeah, it's such a sin. It just broke his heart to see it. And I said, well, do you not want him to pursue that? She goes, no, no, no. If that's what he wants to do and that's what you guys are doing, that's fine. So, you know, that parent was well on board with it. But I definitely wanted to make sure you, you know, call home. Right. Because like Ron was saying, there's sometimes not everyone is into everything and things today are very politically charged yes and yeah. and you know i make that point very clear uh we do a we do a uh a, a whole social studies unit on um government and and i don't talk about my political beliefs and when it's when it's time for you know if it's an election year i don't talk about who i would vote for and why because that's not what the curriculum asked me to do um, right. But I will throw out there, you know, like this is who's running. This is, you know, facts about this person. This is facts about that person to allow those kids to decide, 
hey, well, my dad says this, but but if I read the facts, oh. is, my, yeah. is my dad wrong? My dad, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, Joe, you you bring up such a, a poignant and important point with the you know the kids learning about those koalas burning in in Australia, and those humanitarian efforts. And that the community service efforts of seeing homelessness in the county next years, they're so important that we allow young people to be humanitarians, that we allow them to care and to want to raise money and, and make a difference. At the same time, you you were so astute to point out that if we don't address what's causing homelessness, if we don't address what's causing those koalas to burn up, um, then, you know, there's, we have to be humanitarians endlessly. And so how can we do both? How can we nurture humanitarianism and allow young people to be humanitarians while also helping them to learn to be solutionaries to address the root causes? And in a few years ago in a, a teacher's workshop that I was um, speaking at in New York, I shared an example um, of this uh, activist, if you will, this man who created a program to bring um, leftover discard food that would otherwise be discarded from restaurants and bring it to the food pantries and homeless shelters. And he had all these volunteers, and this was happening in different cities. We had all these volunteers collecting this food, walking it over um, to the food pantries and homeless shelters. And what I asked the teachers is, how how solutionary is this? If you're going to rate this from emerging to most solutionary, with most solutionary being it's addressing the root causes in a way that does the most good and least harm for everybody, how would you rate it? And most people rated it as emerging because it was never, even while it was doing a good thing, but it was never addressing either the root causes of food waste or the root causes of hunger and and people needing somebody to bring them food. And it was really interesting. So one, one teacher who was all the way in the back raised her hand and she actually had been volunteering at the homeless shelter where this food was being brought in and there was so much food that was being brought in that they were having to throw it out themselves. So, you know, there's all of this complex systems thinking and math and statistics and, and history and economics. There's so many things to unpack. And my belief is that the vast majority of parents, no matter what their politics are, will find this solutionary approach to be something they can get behind because it, it's asking students to work together, to build bridges, to actually address the, the problem that everybody can agree is a problem. Mm. I don't know anybody who thinks that it's a, it's a good thing that there are so many people who are homeless. Nobody thinks that's good. 
Now, lots of people disagree on um, what we should do about it. But if we all can agree that it's not good, then can we agree that it's worth helping young people to really research the causes of this and really understand it and and not just go to like, you know, a conservative website or a liberal website, but really learn where is the bias here? How can we understand and and become investigators where we are not just, you know, uh, veering toward um, one side or another of something that's become politicized when really the problem itself, we can all agree is a problem. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah. And I think it's so hard to do, though, because as a teacher, yeah. right, it's very easy to sit there and not to get used to a curriculum, but to understand a curriculum where this changes <laughs> definitely every year based on the students or semester, right? Because, Ron, you get kids <clears throat> throughout the year. <laughs> so, you know, daily with what's going on. I mean, there's so much. So it is on the fly. And we've talked before. That's scary. That's yeah. scary being up there, yep. especially at first when it could be crickets. Right. <laughs> right. Like yeah. very early on. Um, if we're not, you know, if it's not a specific class on, you know, like you were talking about, Zoe, your first class, if it's not something that specific where they're already excited about to try and get that ball rolling with kids that haven't necessarily been through this before, you know, that's a scary task to take on. Um, and maybe as a veteran teacher, not buying into everything, you know, I, I, I can see how it would be tough, but going through it and seeing it tough. Um, but I kind of, that's, to me, that's, what's fun about teaching is that yeah. it can be on the fly and it is very, you know, it's almost like it, it's not Saturday night live, but you know, like <laughs> you have your material, you have your skits, um, and you're trying something out there. You're kind of going in like an improv show and, right. you know, you're, you, you have your background, you know, you know how to get them there, but it's all based on what they want. And, you know, let's hope they come together. Let's, you know, but I think that's part of the process, right? And the struggle is where it's at. Because well, I think if you have that, you know, that solutionary kind of framework, then you right. can, once you get comfortable with that, then you can start to plug in a little easier and have a little more comfort in how to get the things rolling. And I think, Zoe, uh, Julia Fliss was, has been on our show a few times, and she was the one who said, you have to talk to Zoe. You, you, you so she to me is like the perfect example i think i could throw any topic at her and yep. she has the framework where she could put it in because every time she puts something out i'm like i don't think i could right. do that as well as what she's doing there <laughs> yeah. well she's she's amazing yes yeah yes. yeah for sure <laughs> um and i I think you're right that once you understand the framework, um, then you just you figure out how you can infuse it, your curricula with it and integrate your curricula with it. And it's going to be different for different teachers, you know, like a, a local teacher who's a um, she's a, a science teacher, eighth grade science teacher. She teamed up with an eighth grade language arts teacher. And while she couldn't they couldn't. Um, enable their students within their structure to choose whatever problem they wanted. So in other words, they, they couldn't have, you know, groups of three to five kids choosing homelessness while another 
three to five chose, let's say something related to climate change. They couldn't do that. So they they picked an issue um, in our community about um, water pollution and invasive species. And they had their students go through the solutionary process in relationship to what they had chosen. They still made the curriculum come alive in so many ways. The, te- the students were so engaged and excited, even though they didn't get to pick mm-hmm. the actual issue they would address. So we have to make sure that we don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, teachers mm-hmm. are going to have different uh, obstacles and barriers to um, bringing you know, the most complete solutionary approach where, you know, let's say you had an entire semester to do nothing but solutionary work where the students got to pick um, in teams the the issues that they wanted. I mean, that would be my ideal. Um, But if that doesn't fit with, you know, if you can't do an elective, as some teachers will do, they'll do a solutionary elective. Um, But there's an entire county, San Mateo County, California, which is um, between San Francisco and Palo Alto. And this is a really big county. There are 270 schools. There are 113,000 students um, in 23 school districts. And they have made the solutionary framework their approach for the whole county. And now they're doing professional development for teachers in adjacent counties. And they've trained hundreds of teachers who are teacher fellows who have learned how to bring this solutionary approach into their classrooms, who have developed solutionary units that fit with their curriculum. And now the um, county has an annual solutionary fair and they hope that spreads throughout California. So, that's really exciting. Let's all do that. Right. One thing I think that that you brought up that that I, you know, was kind of like a light bulb moment or one of the, I think Oprah used to have the aha moments, um, was like an aha moment for me was I get so sometimes caught up in letting the students choose because I want them to be passionate about it. But if we can frame it in the way that you talked about where can we all agree that this is a problem, then you don't have to have them choose. You you can, you know, frame just two or three problems or issues or just one. Like you said, we can all agree that pollution or homelessness or whatever is a problem. Let's now work through the solution for it because you'll be able to take what you've learned here and apply it to other problems that you'll come up with. So, yes. you know, I, I think I, I get so much caught up sometimes in making sure they have choice but there can be choice in other aspects within that one topic. It could be choice on the project that you do. It can be choice on not necessarily, it doesn't have to be the topic that is the choice. I'm I'm pulling your quote. Don't let perfect be the barrier of the good. And we're using that as our morning uh, discussion quote tomorrow. (laughs) Nice. Um, Because you know what? I'll even, and Bron and I both use we video a lot to to do a lot for our school and our class. And I can't tell you how many times trying to make something perfect, you know, like you beat your head, you know, or yeah, don't. So don't let perfect be the barrier, the good. Um, that's our morning quote for tomorrow. And, and Ron, like it's ba- I thought that's what you were going to say, Ron, but it was basically right along those lines. Yeah. Well, I do think that um, you can have a both and. So 
um, I do think choice is really, if right. you can provide it, is fantastic because you could have some some students who are really passionate about homelessness and other students who are really passionate about climate change and other students who are really passionate about animal cruelty. And if you have the capacity to let students focus on what they're most passionate about solving, that's great. If you don't, then you can find consensus. But this is a, a very important point, which is students will often um, choose a topic like climate change. It's it, I know Greta Thunberg is doing an amazing job uh, as this powerhouse of a young activist, but we really have to help young people to hone in on an aspect of a problem that is actually solvable by them. Because otherwise, they're not going to actually build these skills. They're not going to. They're never going to be able to implement their solution and test their solution and learn from their own failures and improve upon them and and really become adept solutionaries throughout their life. If what they're trying to solve is too big for them in terms of their age appropriateness and their experience. So we had some students, for example, want to solve the problem of poverty in Africa. Now, meanwhile, there was poverty right next door. And what would have been really great is if the teacher had said, I'm so glad you care about poverty and there is poverty in Africa and there's poverty right next door. Let's see what we can do right here at home right here in our, our own community, even our school community, plenty of issues can be addressed in the school community. In fact, we've produced a 10 minute um, animated video of the solutionary process. And, it's, and the problem is what's being served in the school cafeteria. And it's such a, uh, it, it's something that every school could, every, every group of students could be addressing what's being served in the school cafeteria, because I can pretty much guarantee that 99% of school cafeterias are serving students foods and using um, materials and having, you know, plastic water bottles and that, that are unsustainable, inhumane, destructive in so many ways, not even healthy, not even healthy food. And why not have students um, look that close to home and see what they can change. Ron did last year. Yeah. Ah, that's so awesome. <laughs> we did a, our, our fifth, fifth grade, we worked as like a, uh, almost like a nonprofit. So I had the fifth grade class divided into, there was a video production team and a presentation team and a graphics design team. And one team did video games about plastic pollution. Um, and the one fifth grade girl said, we want to get rid of single use plastics in the cafeteria. And she said, I want to talk to the principal and the superintendent. And we had a new principal and superintendent coming in. So I said, okay, you're going to lead a presentation though. And she said, fine. And, and she would go to the video production team and say, Hey, I need a video for my slideshow. This is what I want to have. And she would go to the graphic design team and say, all right, this is what I need to have in my you know, graphics for the, the presentation. And um, now, needless to say, we still have plastics and single-use plastic in the cafeteria. <laughs> it's an issue we're still working on. But just, again, that her being able to 
decide that that's what she was going to do and that's what she was passionate about. And in fifth grade saying, I want to talk to the superintendent yeah. and the principal. As a teacher, I don't know that I would say, hey, I want to talk to the superintendent <laughs> and the principal. So, you know, and that she got up there and was willing to to put it on the line. Uh, well, it's almost like they, maybe they don't get to do their passion, but the pa- the work becomes their passion, right? right? Maybe not the topic, but the work and, and they can start to realize, wait a minute, I could do this about X or, you know, right. fill in the blank. And that introverted kid who could not even imagine ever talking to the superintendent can work in the videography. Right. And so you get everybody using their own skills and talents and um, and thriving in the process. Right. One thing, as we kind of start to, to wrap up a little bit, I think you did your TED talk was all, had this in it. And the the book has the true price, true yep. price activity. And I was looking through it and I'm trying to, I guess I'm trying to look for activities that maybe you can discuss that can be done for younger grades. Cause even like the true price, when I was looking at it, I was trying to think about like, all right, how could Joe do this in third grade or how could we do this in a fourth grade? And it seems too overwhelming mm-hmm. maybe for them. But if you, if you could just touch on like a quick synopsis and I, I'll, I'll link the Ted talk into our, we do a wakelet for each episode and I'll have that linked in there. And, but tell us a little bit about the true price activity. Sure. But then and if you could talk about any kind of, you know, like younger student activities that you could, could think of. So, um, so true price is, it's almost like the quintessential humane education activity. It's the entryway to so much learning. So in true price, you can look at any everyday object and you ask a series of questions about it. So let's say it was a plastic single-use water bottle. What are the effects of this on myself as an individual consumer, on um, the environment, on other species, and on other people? And when you're looking at what are the effects, the impacts, you're also you're looking at both a positive and negative impacts because there are always going to be positive impacts. That's why we have all these things, right? And then you're going to ask, what are the systems that support and perpetuate this item? And what would need to change to um, make those systems change so that we weren't producing things that have negative impacts? And what would be an alternative that does more good and less harm? So all of that is an entryway for solutionary thinking, where you're really diving into the system change later. But just... Even true price, if you pick the right objects, true price can still be done with younger students. And anybody who's interested can go to our website, humaneeducation.org. If you go to the lesson plans and activities, you can filter it by age and grade and subject. And so um, teachers can find all sorts of um, lesson plans for younger students. Um, But I would say that um, it is worth thinking about how we can even ask these questions with younger students, because there's no reason that third graders can't be asking those questions about single-use disposable water bottles. You know, you want to be careful that you don't bring up something that is going to lead them down a path where they're going to, let's say, find out that their favorite uh, 
chocolate bar is produced through slavery, <laughs> you know, that that's too much. So you're not going to, you know, you're not going to pick that, that particular candy bar. But if you're careful about what you pick that you're going to ask about, it's such a great entryway. And True Price, I, I think of True Price as being one of those activities that you can start to think about in 15 minutes, or it could be a PhD dissertation, and everything in between. You could have a whole course that's just True Price, and you would learn math and science and language arts and and economics. You would learn everything, you know, uh, psychology, media, literacy, just through looking at the things that we use. And um, so, yeah, I wouldn't hesitate to say if it if done carefully, it can be done with younger students. And I'll say it made me like after I read it and I watched the TED talk, like I was going around the kitchen cleaning up after dinner, and I was like, uh, looking at you know the spoon and the you know the the container that we got from takeout, and yeah, you know, you start to really look, and it, it reminded me. Um, I practice Zen Buddhism mm -hmm. and the, the Roshi, the teacher had us talk, think about all the people involved in, you know, one item. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about a chair, mm -hmm. so there are the people who planted the trees for the, the wood. And there are the people who cut down the trees and the carpenters and the, and how it, it gets you into the interconnectedness of everything mm -hmm. when you start to look at it, of the yep. person who drove it to the factory and the, you know, the person who boxed it and priced it and the person who did advertising. It just, you realize the interconnectedness of everything, especially now that we're such a global society. Exactly. That, and that systems thinking right, right. there. Yeah. And you, you, you start, you can start systems thinking very young. I'm so I'm just thrilled that you you all reached out to us before we got a chance to reach out to you to to get you on and and to talk to you. It's just it's a joy talking to you. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful for the work that you both do and for you being teachers. I I um when I was uh, in college, I was dating a medical student, and I had actually gone to college pre med before I abandoned that career path. And he said to me uh, one day that he thought that being a physician was the most noble profession. And I remember being really irritated by the comment. I mean, probably because I felt a little defensive, but also it was seemed silly, like who's going to rate professions based on how noble they are. Um, but I, you know, this was a long time ago, and I'm still thinking about it. And I found myself reflecting reflecting on the comment oh, maybe about a decade ago. And I thought to myself, you know, well, I don't think it's a worthwhile endeavor to rate professions based on their nobility. If I were to say what I think the most noble profession is, it would be teaching. And that's because there is no other profession that holds the future in its hands. And if our future is going to be one in which all people, animals, and nature can thrive, it's going to be because of teachers. That's yeah. You just put a lot on our shoulders. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm just grateful for, right, well, you, for you choosing a noble profession and well, being teachers. You. It's nice to hear stuff like that. 
Uh, yeah, especially no. yeah. I mean, some days you definitely need it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, for you sure. Need to hear that. And and in our culture, I really feel like we don't value teachers the way we should. I mean, that's not true everywhere, you know, as many teachers know. And you know, in Finland, being a, a teacher is such a coveted career. Same as in Japan, like there's right. so much respect for teachers, and. Um, we need to change that in the United States. Yeah, it's, uh, sometimes we can be a hero one week, and then the next week we're we're kind of the villains in the whole yep. thing. <laughs> it can change yep. week to week. Um, yeah, that's yep. all right. That's all right. I, I see, seeing the kids' faces when you you bring up some of these topics or or bring up a, a project that that makes every bit of it worth everything we do. I think make makes the fight worthwhile. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, Joe, did you have anything? Um, before we, we wrap up? No, I thought it was an awesome podcast. Um, Zoe, I'd love talking to you. Like you, you fit Likewise. in so well with us. It's like, it's like, you're just part of the crew. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to join the team. And so uh, it's such a, a pleasure to talk to you both. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. And uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll link everything humane Institute uh, in the, show notes on the wakelet and your ted talk and and the book uh oh can we let the book the world becomes what we teach is one of your books i know you have but seven yes i think seven yeah. books um but that was the one you know joe and i were, were reading and really got us interested where can people find you on like social media or you know online so um, people should definitely go to our website, which is the which is humaneeducation.org. And um, you can find us on Facebook, Institute for Humane Education, on Twitter, Humane Education, and Instagram, Humane Education, and LinkedIn, Institute for Humane Education, and Pinterest. <laughs> yeah, you can find us everywhere. Just covered yeah. it all. I was going to say, do you guys still have a MySpace or... <laughs> Ron, you're showing your age, Ron. I know, right? <laughs> um, well, again, thank you so much. Teacher nerds, teacher nerds, knocking on your door. Open up, let's take your teaching further than before. Give it a try, don't be shy, there's nothing there to lose. Worst thing that happens, kids get pain on their shoes. We're talking teacher nerds. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Anchor, or anywhere you listen. When you subscribe, be sure to give us a review and tell a friend. Visit us at teachernerds.com. Follow us on Twitter at Teacher Nerds, on Instagram at Teacher Nerds Podcast, or email us teachernerds at gmail.com. And remember, we're nerds with a Z. Most importantly, thank you for listening and becoming one of the teacher nerds. <laughs>